Amen. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Ruth. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word today. This is from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 23. The words will be on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible or your Bible app you use. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let them proclaim it. Let them declare and set it before me. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Do not fear or be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans, too, are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arms. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He makes it in a human form with a human body to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes it a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he roasts meat, eats it, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I can feel the fire. The rest he takes and makes into a god, his idol bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut, so they cannot see, and their minds as well, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. Now shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself. Or say, is, is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me go ahead and sit down. I know that was a long scripture reading. Thank you for your, for your patience. Um, welcome. Welcome to those online. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Joy, and I do like to read strange parts of the Bible aloud. And, and I think this is one of those strange parts. I wonder if you had this as your devotional reading this morning <laughs> during Advent. Uh, so just to set the table and set the context, we learned last week that this middle portion of Isaiah is addressed to the Hebrew exiles living in Babylon in the 6th century. So God's people have been relocated, i.e. forcibly removed in chains, out of Israel. The temple has been torn down, transported over 500 miles, and now they live in poverty as slaves in Babylon. And remember, this didn't just happen because of bad luck. It happened because God's people turned from their covenant promises with God. They went back on their word. They worshiped the idols of their neighbors. And these idols, they offered get-rich-quick, simple solution, answers to the deepest human problems of the day. And the idols were everywhere and so, so, so easy to succumb to. And so the exile is God keeping his promise. It is the clearly communicated consequence for God's people's behavior. But as we explored last week, Even in the midst of exile, God is still God, and God is still good. And God's saying that he is going to enter into their exile and end it. And there to proclaim who God is and what God has done, and all flesh shall see it together. Everyone's going to see it. And this is what we heard last week from Isaiah 40. Both we heard it in in the music and lyrics of Handel's Messiah and in the sermon. And um, I don't know about you, but hearing that live music from the Messiah was so encouraging to me. I listened to the Messiah in my car all week. And I knew it was working when I started singing it when I wasn't in my car. And then I heard one of my kids singing the bass solo from Psalm 2. And I was like, yes. So as your pastor... Listen to the Messiah this year. It is a great way to to practice learning scripture and experience the glory of God through the creative arts and imagination of Handel. So anyway, but I have to say Handel's Messiah does not include this text from Isaiah 44. So here we are. There is three parts in this section. There's three sections in in, in this part of the chapter I read. And if you take notes in your Bible, this is a a good thing to jot down. So here's an overview. First, verses 6 through 8 is a poem, and God proclaims who he is, and he tells them how to respond. God's uniqueness. Who is like me, says the Lord, right? Then that next long section is a kind of a comedy bit. It's idol-making 101. This is the long part, verses 9 through 20. 
And then finally, at the end, God speaks of what he has done and how the earth is going to respond to his redemption. This is verses 21 through 23. So let's begin in part one. God makes an announcement about his eternity. He is the first and the last. Maybe you remember, hmm, I think this is in the book of Revelation. You're right. God is entirely unique. He is the beginning. He's the end. He's everything in between. Who or what else can say that? You, mere mortal. I can't, right? No way. That's crazy talk to say that you're like that. There is no one like me, God says. And then at the end, he says, I am your sheltering rock. This is who God is. And there is no one like God. First part, a poem. And then part two, not a poem. It is our response, the human response to God's identity. And I think that this prose explains itself. So let's hear it again, but this time in everyday American English. All those who make idols are vacant, and what they work so hard at making doesn't work. Those gods, those witnesses, they see nothing. They know nothing. They're complete disappointments. I mean, who would bother making gods that can't do anything, that can't God? Look at the idol worshipers. They'll be embarrassed one day. Poor people. Their wooden statue didn't perform again. Oh, no. I mean, look at the idol makers shuffle off stage embarrassed when their idols don't perform. Let's call them out in the open. Let's make them face God's reality. So, so the blacksmith takes a, takes a tool. He makes his idol working over it on the forge, hammering on his anvil. Such hard work. He works away at making a god, and then he gets tired and hungry. He gets hot and thirsty because that's how hard it is to make a god. Now, the woodworker, he draws up plans for his idol. He traces it on a block of wood. He shapes it with chisels and planes and into a manly shape. It's going to be placed in a chapel one day. But first, he does have to go out to the woods and cut down a cedar, or or maybe he picks out a pine or an oak after he let it grow strong in the forest, nourished by the rain he didn't send. But isn't the woodworker a lucky man? I mean, this tree can have a double purpose, right? Part of it he uses as firewood for keeping warm and baking bread, and the other part he makes a god that he worships. He carves it into a god shape, and then he prays before it. With half, he makes a fire to warm himself and barbecue his chicken, and he eats a sandwich, and he sits back. Ah, full stomach, warm feet. This is the good life. And then he still has half left over for his God, made special by him and for him, a handy, convenient idol to worship whenever he wants, and any time he feels the urge, he can pray to it. Save me. You're my God. That's smart. Wooden eyeballs, wooden brains, and the other half dripped on with chicken grease. What were they thinking? Wake up and smell the roses. Half of this tree I use for firewood. I bake bread, barbecue chicken, enjoyed a good meal. And now I've used the rest to make an idol. Here I am praying to a stick of wood. Save me, sticky. You're my only hope. 
this nincompoop. His brain must be wooden too. He is so out of touch with reality, so far gone, that he is blind to what he's doing, just like his God. He can't even look down at that stick in his hand and say, this is crazy. That's part two. That, that was, if you're curious, that was my adaptation of Eugene Peterson's dynamic translation, if you wondered. But it tells a story of that middle part, right? That satire that Isaiah is writing about the ridiculousness of idolatry. And often, when we in the 21st century think of idols, this is what we think of, right? There we go. We think of wood or stone sculptures in faraway cultures or places. But actually, we are just as good at making and worshiping idols. In fact, I think we do it better because we make these idols and then we act like they're not idols. Kind of like the blacksmith and woodworker, we take good things and turn them into idols. And we want to think that an idol is a 100% bad thing, but that's really not true. Because the bigger the tree, and big trees are good, right? The bigger the tree, the bigger the idol. And the greater the good of something, whether that's an idea or a person or a thing, the more likely we are to believe and expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. And so we trust in idols We hope in them, and they take up our mental and emotional space. And so it's the first thing we think of when we wake up in the morning and the last thing we think about before we go to sleep. It provides purpose and meaning. As Tim Keller says, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would would feel hardly worth living. And so we make good things, God-created things, into idols. I mean, trees are great, right? But you can take one and carve it and worship it. Here's some other idols in our culture. Sex. Sex. God made sex for beauty and for procreation. God made sex as this wonderful theological metaphor of how much God loves his people and how much Jesus loves the church. And in the right context, which is marriage, sex is good, but anything else, it's idolatry. Wine, wine or other alcohol, but but wine in scripture is a great symbol of the blessing of God. And many scripture passages uphold the beauty of wine, but what happens when you put wine in an idolatrous culture? Substance abuse, dependence, alcoholism, success. We want to be good at our jobs and good at school. We want to make partner or straight A's or have kids who do, and it's good to be good at your job and good at school, right? That's good, but you make it too important? So that getting A's or achieving partner or however you define success becomes your only goal and only self-definition, idolatry. If you cry when you get a B, idolatry. That's my little poem. Another one, beauty and perfection. Drive down Garfield. 
right? Look at Hinsdale Living Magazine, and it is perfect. Outside, inside, even the sock drawers. Chromatically arranged, perfectly ordered, no mistakes, highest standards, 110% of the time, even though that's impossible. And often, those who idolize perfection will struggle with depression and anxiety and compulsiveness. And, And if this sad tree bothers you, you know, let's talk about the idol of perfection. So do we go on? Money, power, even being properly right and good and making the right choices about every little thing, this can become an idol because it's not about the grace of God. It's called scrupulosity. I don't have a picture for that. And you have it when you're no fun to be around because you want so hard to get everything right. What else? Christmas. The celebration of Jesus' birth. This is good, right? It's good to celebrate Christmas. Well, Christmas too can become idolatrous. When the celebration becomes focused all on our past memories or our experiences with family, when we wish and hope and plan and pray that it's all going to be good, that it's going to be magical, we can make Christmas about that stuff and not about Jesus. Because all good, God-created things can become idols, and idols lead us away from God. And just like that idol maker with his little stick, we say, save me, wine, from this mediocre and lonely existence. Save me, diverse portfolio, from this tumultuous economy. Save me, A's, so I can get into a top college and be successful, just like the stressed-out people I know. Save me, sock drawer, from all the things I can't control. Save me, Christmas, from the chaos of 2020. Because we are the nincompoops. That passage about that crazy idol maker, that's not just about them. That's about us. Here's a new metaphor for you. At its core... Idolatry is like marrying your wife's casserole, the delicious one with the tater tots, right? Worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. Because idolatry misses the point and fundamentally leads us away from God. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Idolatry is a path away from God. And it's in idolatry that God gives us up, just like he gave up his people to be exiled. You want to worship that stick? Go ahead. It's yours. Idolatry leads us to exile from God. And even once exiled, idolatry can lead us further and further away from God. But wait. There's another poem. Part three of the text. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. 
I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. God wants his people to remember what he has done and who he is. Remember these things because I formed you. We are the ones who have been made, just like the carpenter chisels the stick. God has made us. And then God says, I have swept away your sins. I've forgotten that, though. And I have redeemed you, so return to me. Now, redeemed is a very Christianish word. And maybe the only context outside church that we use this is in regard to a coupon code, right? Redeem the coupon. But here it has to do with the ancient Hebrew idea of the next of kin having the privilege of buying back a property or marrying a widow in order to maintain the social fabric. The word redeem is a relationship word. It's not an economy word. It's about protection. God is protecting us from the power of those idols because God wants to be in relationship with us. And Jesus is the one who does this. Jesus is the one who will redeem and protect. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' uncle Zechariah proclaims that this is about to happen. Praise be to the Lord, he says, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Because God is showing up and he is going to redeem us nincompoops. And because God has redeemed us, we are to remember, remember, tell the story again and again and write it down and tell it to your children and your friends and think of it the first moment you wake up and the last minute you go to sleep like a song stuck in your head, like the Messiah stuck in my head all this past week. Let it play all day. Remember. Because when we remember who God is and what God has done, That's the lens through which we view all of life, all those potential idols. Look at sex through the lens of remembering God. Look at wine and success and perfection through the lens of remembering God. And then those good things will simply remain good things and not be idols. Then the last part. That is a lot of instruction. I made it bold here. Sing, shout, break forth into singing. Those are good commandments, right? But look again. We are not the ones commanded to sing. Now, we're commanded to sing in other parts of Scripture, so please keep singing. But this time, we're not the ones being commanded. Who sings? The heavens sing. The sea is going to shout. The forest and all the trees are going to sing. Trees. Just like the one that sad woodchopper cut down and made into an idol in a barbecue pit. We worship created things, but those created things were not made to be worshipped, but to worship God themselves. All the stuff that we make into idols was originally created to participate in worship of our God Almighty, the first and the last. And here we are, us nincompoops, 
confused and crazy and putting our hope in sticks and portfolios and A's and perfect sock drawers. But God still remembers us and he hasn't forgotten us and he wants to be in relationship with us so badly that he comes down that straight path for our redemption. And so, so if a tree... <laughs> If a tree can worship God, so can we. And so, my friends, here and online, this is the day to return to God. This is the season to return to God. This is the Christmas to return to God. Return to God right now, even as we participate together in the sacrament of communion. It's interesting that we use wine and bread for communion, just like Jesus did in the early church, of course. We recognize that these are powerful symbols. Sometimes they can remind us of our own idolatry, whether it's food or how much we eat or alcohol. This is juice. We use juice because of problems that I mentioned today, but historically it has been wine. But even that... Even that element of creation, God is redeeming and using it for his glory to unify us to each other and to Christ. And so this body of Christ, this bread, and you were bought and redeemed at a price. Jesus rescued us all from sin and death through his sacrificial death on the cross. Another tree, not made into an idol this time, but what held up the maker of the universe as he died by asphyxiation. This is our God, Jesus, who is alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father, the first and the last, and he's going to return to us because he remembers us. So let's respond. Let's return to Jesus this season and today, and let us begin with the sacrament of communion. And to prepare our hearts, I'd like you to please pray the, the following prayer aloud with me. The words will be on the screen. And then we'll have a time of silence after each one. Lord God, give us the courage to look deeply into our hearts and know where we've worshipped something you've made instead of you. By your spirit, shed light on our sin. Give us the strength to confess it and repent. By your spirit, help us to remember who you are and what you've done so that we can return to you out of our exile. And may we join in all creation to participate in worship of you to your glorious name. Amen.